Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast, available on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts from, so you don't miss a single episode. Good morning and welcome to Football Digest. Um, my name's Andy Dunn, I'm the Chief Sports Writer from the Daily Mirror. I'm glad to say I'm joined um, today by Matt Dunn of the Daily Express, Chris McKenna of the Daily Star, and Dave McDonald of the um, Daily Mirror as well. Uh, morning, chaps. Lots to go at. Um, we've had a Champions League week. Um, obviously, we've got a, a big weekend of Premier League action to look forward to. There's also off-the-field issues, you know, Spurs, for example, um, in the middle of a, a COVID crisis. So plenty to go at, guys. Um, so let's kick off. Um, I want to I start with, because um, we haven't spoken since Ralph um, Rangnick made his first um, official appearance in the dugout uh, last Sunday against Palace and obviously last night against Young Boys. Um, so, Dave, I, I just want to come to you. You, uh, I think you're probably at both games. Um, yeah. he's, made a, he's made quite an impression, hasn't he, in just two games? He has, yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't exactly set Old Trafford alight with the 1-0 win, but there was, you know, in terms of the, the, um, the set-up and the way they pressed, I mean, we all know about, you know, Ranić's, you know, watchword, which is control. Um, and his his favourite go-to phrases, which are high-pressing, high-intensity, proactive. United were all of those things um, uh, against Palace, yeah, particularly in the first 20, 30 minutes. I mean, they were unrecognisable from from the side that had been labouring under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for, for so many weeks um, recently. Uh, so you, you could see immediately his his sort of imprint on the team. And I thought it was interesting as well, the formation. You know, he went with this United of steadfastly under Solskjaer, played a 4-2-3-1, and... and uh, you know, players have been untouchable. You know, the likes of Harry Maguire, the likes of Wan-Bissaka, uh, Luke Shaw, left back. Uh, he's, he's basically stuck with the same personnel. But Ranić kind of tore that up, if you like, and went with this four-two-two-two, um, which took many people by surprise. But it, but it worked. You know, United were far more uh, in control. Um, you know, they they pressed Palace throughout. They won the ball back. I think they won the ball back, if memory serves correct, ten times in the final, uh, twelve times, sorry, in the final third, which is more than they've done at any time this season. So. The stats back up Ranick's approach. Um, so yeah, it was it was a it was a. Mm. You know, I, th- I think United tired certainly um, after that first half hour or the first half against Palace, and, and that's inevitable. And even Ranick himself said, "Look, it's obvious when you're not used to playing that way, you, you, you can't sustain it for that long." But certainly there was evidence there that they're going to be a lot more proactive, um, have a lot more control of the ball. And he keeps saying this phrase, you know, he wants to get them to play further away from their goal, which sounds pretty pretty obvious, you know. <laughs> further away from the goal you are, the less likely you are to concede. But that's something that United haven't done um, this season. Uh, and it was noticeable that they were playing higher up the pitch with a higher defensive line. So, listen, it's early days. He said it won't happen overnight. Of course, it's going to take time for him to implement his ideas. But you could certainly see in the Palace game, um, uh, his uh, evidence of his philosophy last night against John Boys was completely different. You know, none of the players from the Palace win were uh, even in the squad. You know, uh, he made eleven changes, and all the players that were on the bench there weren't even in the squad. He obviously gave a lot of um, uh, opportunities to young players, um, and it made perfect sense because United were already through to the mm. to the last sixteen as group winners. So it made sense for him to kind of treat the game as a bit of a fact-finding mission, if you like, and and assess the squad. And, and players like Mason Greenwood, Jesse Lingard, um, you know, Wan-Bissaka came back in, Luke Shaw came back in. You know, of course, the youngsters, you know, the academy players who came in, it was a great experience for them. So you can't read too much into last night. I thought the only player that really um, gave Ranić something to think about was Mason Greenwood. Um, you know, his goal was outstanding. The way he took it, the way he played, I mean, he set up one matter for a great chance. And 
you know, really, he's he's really pushing uh, for a place against um, Norwich on Saturday evening at, at Carrow Road. I mean, you know, Marcus Rashford partnered Ronaldo up front against Palace, but for my for my mind, um, Greenwood would be certainly ahead of Rashford. I mean, Rashford's been off the boil recently. Um, obviously, he's just come back from shoulder surgery, and he's taken him time to get back to his best. But Greenwood was outstanding, um, and certainly stayed to claim to, to to start on Saturday. Yeah, hey, Chris, I, I, I'm interested in Mason Greenwood. You know, I find I find the whole situation with him in England absolutely fascinating. You know, it's as though Southgate is sort of trying to protect some kid coming through who's only played a handful of games for his club. I mean, for goodness' sake, he's played well over a hundred games for Manchester United. You know, he's, is he 21, I think? Um, you know, he's not a kid. I mean, he, he, he might be a kid in terms of he's relatively young, but not in terms of Premier League standards, not in terms of, you know, top-class international players. So I find it really odd. And, and even at United, I still get the sense that, you know, he's not quite... Should he be, you know, one of their... Well, one of their main strikers? Should he be their main striker? Should he be their... Is he the best finisher at the club? And there's always this little undercurrent of, of, of suggestions that you know maybe maybe his attitude isn't right. And I mean, what what do you make of, of Greenwood's situation? The, the England thing seems to go back to that incident in Iceland, uh, mm. which, which happened during the COVID and breaching protocols and all of that stuff. But obviously, Phil Foden has has long since been forgiven over that. So I don't know whether there was more to that behind the scenes or whatever, but. He hasn't obviously been properly back in the England fold since then. Um, should it be Man United? I think he's a victim, which which Rashford was for a while, where they don't know where to play him yet. They're, they're moving him around. He's on the right wing some games, on the left wing some games. And you say, if he is the best finisher, should, be, should he be, be being played through the middle? But obviously, that's unlikely now to happen because of a certain Mr. Ronaldo who has come in and who has to play every most games for obvious reasons. He's... He's the best finisher mm. in that sense, in that he's a poacher. Whereas, but Greenwood's definitely the next, de- definitely the next uh, most natural finisher. So, his development surely is that Manchester United have to find out right. This is a position, and we need to play him there every game. And so he, he gets used to it. So he, he's he's more competent in the role. This thing of moving around across the front three, I don't think it's going to help his development. So, but the problem is they've got Ronaldo now. So how do you fit that in? Um, They've got Jaden Sancho who's got to play on one flank. They've got Marcus Rashford who's got to play on on the other flank. So, where does he fit in? How does he best develop? If he's is that good for him? Just playing bit part games, coming on in games, or playing a game and then not playing for two games? I'm not sure. For a young player, I think he needs to be playing every week. Mm. But they've got a problem there, haven't they? How do you fit him in? But the yeah. issue, sorry, sorry, Andy. The, the interesting thing, Chris, is that with that four-two-two-two formation. Uh, that, that Ranjit favours, that enables him to play with two strikers. So he could, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he could feasibly play with Ronaldo and Greenwood. And I think against Palace, he played behind them. He played with Sancho and Fernandes. And then obviously the, the the two holding would be Fred and McTominay. So that system, if he sticks with it, you know, and he, and he is renowned for it, um, would enable Greenwood to play there. But it was interesting, uh, just quickly as well on Greenwood, Ranjit was singing his praises quite rightly last night after the game. And, and he said, uh, as, as, as you said, Chris, there, that, you know, it's difficult to know which position he is. He, he called him a nine and a half. You know, he's not an out-and-out striker, but because yeah, he, he can play wide and cut in, and he's and he's so good on either foot. You know, he's, mm. he's so he's, he's almost a victim of his of his own um, uh, versatility in a way. Um, but it'll, it'll be interesting to see how he how he how he handles Greenwood because I think he's he's deserving of a start in the form he's in. Yeah. 
I'm sure if anyone can handle him, Ralph can handle him because he, he's certainly the um, the hipster's favourite, don't he? Isn't he? he, he you know, I'm, and already he's being loaded after two games, and um, he, he's certainly got a good reputation. Um, what I would say is that um, the dangers of judging an interim manager. Um, I remember one manager taking temporary charge, won his first eight games on the spin. Um, Ollie Gunner, someone I think it, it was at Manchester United. So. I guess we better be careful about judging them. But he has made a little bit of an impression, hasn't he? Are you a hipster fan of, of Ralph? Ah, any man who can increase his reputation after a narrow win against Palace and a draw with young boys has got to be have something special about him. <laughs> um, I, 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 it's like you say, it's too early to judge. He's put some energy into the team and, you know, fair play. But that doesn't take a lot of rocket science. Uh, and the tactical change has kind of worked, although the results haven't really followed. So I think it's early doors. The first real test will be when they play one of the big teams to see how, because that's what United should be benchmarking against. Uh, and if they can live with a City and a Liverpool and a and a Chelsea, then I think that'll be the measure of, of whether his system works. And then we've got to get over this idea that if it does work, does he stay on as manager or is he there telling another manager what to do? Um you know, it's an interesting conundrum and, uh, and plenty for people to get their teeth into, although ultimately I think it's down to the players to to start playing and and that's always been the case and Solskjaer couldn't get them to do that, uh, not consistently enough and uh, that'll be the, the ultimate test. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to stay with you, Matt, because um, what one guy who it's not too early to judge, we've already judged him as being a a major a major success and a major asset to his club, is Thomas Tuchel. But just, you know, over the last week or so, some cracks beginning to appear. He, he, he appeared, I think you were at the game where, no, you weren't at the game, you were covering the game, certainly, the Zenit yeah. game. And he, and he appeared to, he appeared to get, a, lose his rug a bit with the reporter at some stage. Was that after that game? Um, yeah. Uh, it wasn't was, you, was it? Normally is. Not me, not me this time, no. Um, yeah, he's, uh, I think he's finding it, this is his first lull, isn't it? Because he mm. hit all running. Um, in January, um, and uh, and and yeah, since then it's been up and up and up and up, and that that was always going to be the first test of of how good it is because he demands so much of his players that when he's demanding everything and probably getting everything and the results still aren't working, that's when he's tended to fall out with people in the past because he's quite an abrasive fella, uh, and I think these last few results, I think Rudiger's position. Um, is interesting with his contract situation. I don't think that's helping because I think he's been mm. an absolute colossus for um, uh, for Chelsea in recent seasons, certainly the last couple of seasons, and certainly under Tuchel in that back three. Um, so, so the uncertainty over his future isn't helping. Uh, and yeah, a couple of performances that haven't quite been on the button, uh, and suddenly, like you say, those cracks are beginning to appear, and he needs to lift them out of that quite quickly. Um you can go through the tapes and say, well, actually, you're not doing much wrong. Um, mm. Even Timo Werner's scoring again, which is an incredible feat if you can get him scoring. Um, I think uh, I would have yeah. scored that. I say he's found his range. He, the, yeah. you know, he can score from there. And then, and to be fair, he, he managed to stray onside for a brief while to score the second one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so there isn't a lot wrong. But, uh, yeah, he's got Lukaku finding his way back to to, to fitness again. So, hopefully, you know, hopefully for them, that'll be a boost. But, yeah, he, he's been on a massive charm offensive, you know, since he arrived. And, and, yeah, the first time a few questions are being asked, it, I don't think he, he likes it too much. 
No, no, I know. I know. Just and, and in 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 the Daily Mirror, um, Dave, the, the, the um, Stan, I Stan Collymore the other day saying that you know he just got the impression that maybe a few of the Chelsea players were, I don't know, just just not not complacent, but maybe just taking their eye off the ball a bit, believing their own publicity. Um, you know, they they've been sort of seen as a team to catch, but now such is it, such is the tightness of the of that battle between the top three. You know, one slip can be very costly, and and we saw that at the weekend because you know Liverpool and City, you know, will be relentless. So, so a little bit of pressure mounting on Chelsea and Tuchel, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think, as Matt said, you know, this this is the first real sort of dip they've had under him, um, and when things are going extremely, you know, mm. as they did last season, you know, you know, end up winning the Champions League. Yeah, I guess there there, there can be an element, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> of complacency creeping in, um, but I. I I still don't see, you talk about Liverpool and City being relentless. I still don't see, I think with the standard of the Premier League this season, it's much, much higher. Um, you've got West Ham, you know, already beaten, you know, Liverpool and, um, you know, now beating Chelsea as well in the league. I, I, I don't see the likes of City and Liverpool going on these relentless winning runs that we've seen in the past. I and mean, this time last year, City, I think, went on a 28-game unbeaten run in all competitions, not, not obviously not the Premier League. You know, now... I don't see that happening again. I don't see Liverpool. I think that the standard is so competitive now and and there's been a real, you know, levelling up, if you like, in terms of a a lot of the teams that I think it's going to be nip and tuck all the way. So, yeah, I do think you can't afford too many defeats, certainly. Um, And I think Chelsea really needs to um, get back back on track against Leeds, you know, this this weekend. Um, But, you know, the signs are there that, that, you know, the cracks are starting to appear. And, you know, when that happens, you've got to, as a manager, you've got to um, act immediately because um, it has been all plain, plain sailing for Chelsea so far. So really, th- this will be a real test of Tuchel's management to see how he navigates his and the team's way out of this mini-crisis. The other player, Andy, that I should mention, that you only miss when he's gone, and that's N'Golo Kante. Yeah, true. Um, who's just such a... I mean, you kind of feel privileged being able to go to games and sit watch him, because the, the, you, the, you don't get an appreciation on the box just how much ground he covers mm. and, then, and then pops up somewhere where you don't expect him to. And I think that's been the problem with them not scoring as many goals as much as stopping goals. You know, he has such an important role to play in both those areas that, that I think, you know, the fact that he's only played, well, I think, about eight games this season. Yeah. Also something that they've coped with. But then when your Jorginho went missing as well, um, you know, got injured, you know, it was suddenly that big hole became obvious, and and you know any manager is going to struggle to cope with that. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and, and, and again, it's just not, you know, as a lot of players of that ilk who are so um, tireless in their contribution, it's also overlooked that he's, you know, he's a very good footballer, you know, as well as covering a lot of ground, a very good footballer, and has added the odd goal to his to his um, to his repertoire. So I think you're right, you know, he's very much missed, but they do have a, a cast of thousands. So they should really be able to compensate for that. We, we mentioned um, then about um, Chelsea not being able to... David mentioned there that maybe Liverpool and, and City won't go on these relentless runs. And City, of course, they lost it, lost at Leipzig. And it was just a, it was a strange game, wasn't it? It's strange that maybe Guardiola didn't rotate a little bit more in terms of give some of the youngsters a bigger chance. I think some, I think some of us, you know, in, in the press expected him to do so. He didn't really sort of do what... In, in, in the sense that Rangnick did, and then a bit of an ill-disciplined display, really, capped off by um, by Kyle Walker's um, sort of uh, moments of madness, which you know, in the grand scheme of things, isn't too serious, but it does mean he misses the next game, doesn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, we all, I mean, look, it's, it's, Guardiola, I mean, you know, his achievements since he's come to Manchester City have been remarkable. And, and one of the things I think, apart from the trophies and the, and the beautiful football and, you know, the relentless winning runs and everything, it's, it's the fact that he plays strong teams. I think most of us, all of us love the fact that he takes every competition seriously. You know, they won the League Cup mm. four years in a row. Uh, he always plays a strong team in the FA Cup as well. I mean, maybe you could say, well, you know, he's got such a formidable squad that he can't not pick a strong team. But I think, on Tuesday night, it was a real missed opportunity. Um, he had, I think, five academy graduates on the on the on the bench. You know, in the, the travelling party to Leipzig, um, McAtee, Egan, Riley, Wilson, Esbrand, uh, Romeo Lavia, and of course Cole Palmer, who's um, you know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, first team games already in school in the Champions League. So, given they'd already qualified as group winners, it would have made perfect sense. For, for Guardiola to, to blood those youngsters, if you like, and give them you know the invaluable experience, you know, because if you can't get a game in a dead rubber, then <laughs> when I going to get a game? And I just think it was missed opportunity. I understand the fact, and he was a bit tetchy pep afterwards, probably obviously because they lost. But I understand the fact that that he that he wanted to give players minutes, so he he said he Walker Walker didn't play against Aston Villa in the, in the game prior to the, the previous game, mm-hmm. so that's the reason he started. Um, but it made no sense, you know. All, all those youngsters who travelled, they got the sum total of three minutes, and that was Cole Palmer coming on the 87th yeah. minute. You know, so uh, you know when you compare it to what Ranić did, you know, the, the following mm-hmm. thing, it, it doesn't make sense at all. And I, I just think Guardiola, you know, I can understand why he wants to give players minutes and he wants to keep the, the rhythm going. But equally, you know, when are those youngsters going to get a chance now? I mean, they're out of the League yeah. Cup, beaten by West Ham. If he takes the FA Cup as seriously as he has done in previous seasons, those those kids aren't going to get anywhere near. Um, the, the first thing so um, only he knows why and as I say he was a bit terse afterwards and you know the press conference the, the virtual press conference didn't last too long um, <laughs> and he just he just you know said look you know I picked the team because I wanted to give players rhythm but um, I think, as I said it was a missed opportunity you see it's interesting you say that I'm, I'm intrigued by Guardiola and his attitude to, to, to bring in youngsters through I'm, I'm quite intrigued by the fact he just doesn't do it for the sake of it. I understand fully what you're saying. That, that you know, one thing I don't think he treats any game as a dead rubber, and and secondly, I just think his attitude is different from a lot of managers in in the sense that he's basically saying, listen, you're not getting into the team unless you're good enough. You know, unless you're better than the players that I've actually got at my disposal. It's very interesting when I think me and you were at the game um, when Cole Palmer started in a Premier League game. Was it against Everton? Maybe. McAtee came on towards the end as well. But basically, you know, when, when asked to, to wax lyrical about these kids, he's he's quite reluctant, you know. He's basically saying, listen, th- 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 we're not just here to, to give kids from the academy, you know, a chat. We don't just bring them through for the sake of bringing them through the way it looks. They're, they're either good enough to get in the team, they're either better yeah. than the squad, the senior squad members, or they're not. And when they get in the team, if they don't perform to that level, they're out of the team. Yeah. I think he's quite ruthless in that sense. And if you look at City... The standard you've got to be to get through that academy into the first team is Phil Foden, basically. And until you're talking world class, I just think it's really, it's a really fascinating story where he's not saying, "Well, this game is is a dead rubber," so I'm just going to give these kids a bit of experience. In the same way that Rangnick did, in the same way to a certain extent, Chris, that the, the clock did with with Tyler Morton the, the, the other night. It, 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 it's it's interesting the the attitude to actually the importance of bringing players through the academy. You know, and Chelsea have done it this season as well. I don't think Guardiola quite has that same sort of... He doesn't feel the pressure to think, right, I've got to play the kids that come through the academy. Is there a financial aspect to that, though, Andy? Can I cut in there? Yeah, please do. City City don't need to sell players to buy players. 
Whereas by playing people like Morton in, in the odd game, you suddenly increase that value yeah. hugely. So Liverpool... Yeah, I, I, I don't think Jurgen Klopp's playing Tyler Morton thinking, well, if I play him a few times, I might get 30 million for him and I might be able to buy somebody. I don't think that would mm. be the reason there. I mean, I don't uh, know if not, that not happens. Directly, but, but he wants to improve him as a player because he's got a bifold interest in that. He either yeah. improves him as a player to be a good Liverpool player or he improves yeah. him to be someone that they can move on and perhaps invest yeah. in what he actually wants. And I, there's been a lot of that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think... I think you get his name in the paper and you get a few caps on the board and you, you increase his value. It just seems a no-brainer from, from a manager who manages a football club rather than just, you know, yeah. just the first 11. I, I, I think, I think Matt, that I'm with Chris on that. I think it's a byproduct that, 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 that happens. And there are countless examples of that at Liverpool, of players who've been young players who've been brought in for games whose value has increased dramatically and probably over the top. I mean, I'm thinking of players like Ryan Brewster. You know, I mean, Harry Wilson was one of those players. Woodburn was one of those players. Jordan Ive. Sorry? Jordan Ive. Jordan Ive. You know, so, so that is a byproduct of that. Exactly. You know, and Chelsea have made, uh, you know, I mean, they don't, they don't even have to play in the first team, do they, for goodness sake? They they, they just, they just you know, produced them, send them out on loan so they play for someone else's first team and, and, and then sell them on. I understand that. I don't think that's the case, um, Chris, with Lippard. It's certainly not the case with Tyler. It's certainly not the case with Tyler Morton. I don't think Klopp thinks of that, does he? No, he, he's thinking that they've got a, a young, talented player that he wants to see what level he can get at, and and if if he can be a player that they don't have to buy somebody to replace um, to to bring in in midfield when Fabino or or Henderson uh, uh, get on too old, will, will this Tyler Morton, will he be able to fill in? And I think that's the way Jurgen Klopp looks at it. It was quite pointed. He was speaking about the goalkeepers the other week because they brought in Tafarel as a coach. And he said that we want a proper goalkeeping team because we don't want to have to go out and buy the world's most expensive goalkeeper again to have the best goalkeeper. We want to create our own. So I think that's in their thinking that they want to bring these players through get them in the team, see what they can do, and then make a decision whether they're going to be good enough to fill fill those shoes or whether they're going to have to go out and invest in somebody else. And I think that's a healthy way of looking at it because I can't imagine, like, obviously, David and no more than me on this, but how demoralising it must be at City if you're coming through the, through the youths. I know we were talking the last time I was on here about youth academies and how good Man City's is and how... Man United players, old Man United players are sending their kids to City because it's so good, but there's no pathway to the first team. You know, there's not many chances. Like, how demoralising must that be that you, you're grafting at 16, 17, 18, thinking, oh, I'll get a chance here. And and, and not even just thinking, oh, I'll play for City, but going back to kind of Matt's point, they get on and they play a few games for City. Other clubs are going to go, oh, he must be decent. I've seen a bit of him. He's playing at, come through at Man City. We'll buy him get that opportunity if they're not getting that opportunity to be put in the shop window even never mind cracking at city like where's the kind of future for them and the the other thing on the play on managers not making many changes like for pep in a few weeks there'll be complaints about their hectic christmas schedule like they're playing every two games that oh there's more internationals coming there's the africa cup of nations then there's march internationals and it's like you can't have a boat ways you can't be moaning that your players are playing too much, and then when you have dead rubber games or games against far lesser opposition, that you're not you're not making changes. So it's uh, it's it that's a, it's just a bear of a brunt with me with managers that 
it's always the international team's fault. It's always somebody else's fault. But when they get a chance to rest players, they don't always take it. Yeah, uh, sorry, David, I thought you were going to come on now. Is it frustrating? Yeah. Is it a feeling at City that, that young players are frustrated? Or is it the case that they, you know, they should know, really? You know, it's not hard to realise that, that if you are one of those players in the academy, it is going to be tough. You will only, as I just, to repeat myself, you only have to look at the time it took Phil Foden to establish himself in that team. Yeah. And Phil Foden, you know, is is is, is a once-in-a-generation youngster. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a difficulty with Foden. He is such an exceptional generational talent that it, it's difficult to use him as an example. But Yeah, yeah, sure. But, but if we are using him as an example of a, a a youngster, an academy prospect, you remember the clamour for, for Guardiola to play Foden, to give him more minutes, yes. and he resisted that. He resisted it and resisted it and resisted it. And I think he played, you know, half a dozen times in, uh, towards the end of a season, three or four seasons ago. And then even the season after that, I think he only played maybe 10 or 11 times and I think he got, he got a Premier League winner's medal. But he resisted the temptation to play him. And, you know, you have to say his, his development, his handling of Foden has been spot on. You know, he's nurtured him properly. He's getting the very best out of him. Okay, you know, you, you can't legislate for injuries. But he's, he's certainly you know, guarded against playing him, you know, too soon, too young uh, and, and suffering the inevitable, you know, f- you know fall, you know, that, that would probably come from, from that and potential yeah. burnout. He's, he's, he's driven him into the team. And we're seeing the very best of Foden. And, you know, he's arguably, what well, arguably is one of the most exciting young players in Europe, let alone England. So I think you have to, in that sense, you have to trust Guardiola's judgment. And you're right, Danny, it's an interesting point. You know, perhaps Guardiola's thinking um, is, is that, look, you know, I'm not just going to give you an opportunity. You've got to prove it. You've yes. got to prove you're better. Uh, the flip side of that is you could argue, well, how do you prove that you're better if you don't yes. get a opportunity to play? So it, it's a kind of chicken and egg scenario, isn't it? But, if you're looking at Foden, he, his his handling of, of him has been you know, exemplary. Cole Palmer, um, you know, the, the, or the feeling at Manchester City is that he is, you know, uh, it can be as good as Phil Foden. I mean, he's he's really really highly thought of. Um, you know, they've had their eye on him in the, in the academy for for three or four years now. Uh, and again, he's following the same path as Foden, being gradually introduced to the first team. You know. I mean, he had a, a wonderful goal against Bruges in the in, in the Champions League. You came up with three minutes the other night. You know, of course they'll be frustrated. Of course they'll be, you know, desperate to to, to get on the pitch and show what they can do. But they have to trust in Guardiola. And you know, the, the youngsters only have to look at Phil Foden and the way he has he has um, come onto the scene and the way he's actually stayed and and become a permanent fixture in the first team. To see that perhaps Guardiola knows what he's doing when it yeah. comes kind of you know nurturing youngsters and and um giving them you know the right amount of game time at the right yeah. time you, you, you know chris in his in his physique i guess sort of uh tyler morton sort of reminds me a little bit of 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 you know he's quite slight in, in the sense of the way foden is and, and it's funny our, our old friend alan chamberlain makes a comment here saying that even though you know morton steps into the san zero and, and Liverpool, the transition was seamless there didn't seem to be any any and he hiccup in the way Liverpool play, and I think it's, I think when we're looking back on, um, on this week's Champions League, it, it is, it, it's quite sort of um, easy to overlook the fact that um, the Liverpool won six out of six. They they essentially sent a, not not exactly a B team, but certainly you know not their first choice eleven into the San Siro against a against pretty much a full strength AC Milan team and came away with a win. You know, which which is I mean it's quite remarkable really to, to win six out of six in that group. If you remember, that was the group was the group of death. You know, it turns out to be the group of death over Liverpool. So I mean, you know, it, it, it's a great achievement from them. 
Yeah, it's unbelievable. First English team to do it in the Champions League. Um, mm. Yeah, to go to the San Siro and obviously, yeah, AC Milan and not the AC Milan of, of the 2007 and, and, and all of that, but they're still top of Serie A. They're still ahead yeah. of ahead of Jose Mourinho's Roma, ahead of Inter Milan, ahead of Juventus, all of these top sides. So, okay, they've got a very ageing centre-forward in Zlatan Ibrahimovic, but they've still got talented players like Brahim Diaz and, and that around them. And, yeah, Tyler Morton um, didn't look out of place in that midfield. It was quite remarkable. Yeah. I think he had the most interceptions in the game. Um, he was obviously impressive against Porto in the previous game as well when he got a goal at Anfield. So, yeah, six games out of six, it's great. But the other flip side of it is that I always see this as a bit as like the qualifying for a major tournament. It's because it's great. You got to do it. You got to get there. You got to get the job done. And it obviously having those Porto and AC Milan games, which weren't as, as intense for Liverpool, meant it's helped Jurgen Klopp change a few names and freshen up a bit. But again, it, 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 they still go into the knockout stages, and it's still. It's back. That counts for nothing now. Yeah. So it's it's a good sign. If you remember the year they won it in 2019, they they got they nine points. Through. They just scraped through that last game. I'm sure you were there, Andy. And Alice made them. that save. Chris leads on. Like and it was like, and then they go on and win it, and they go and beat Bayern Munich, Porto, mm. Barcelona, to, all the way to the final. So exactly. It 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 doesn't. It doesn't guarantee that they're going to win it this year or anything, but it's obviously a great achievement and it's helped to rest players. So yeah. it's worked out that way for them perfectly. It's really, it's amazing, isn't it? I think they they, they lost a sort of haven't lost three or four games in in that whole in that whole campaign, didn't they? And I, I remember um, it, it, Napoli, wasn't it? And 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 I'm trying to think who he was, the striker who should have scored anyway yeah. for Napoli later on. It's gone out it, of my Allison head as well. Alison got the credit now, and the, the, the guy is his straight time. I remember that. But he what went through on the goal thing? difference. They, it wasn't even goal yeah. difference. They'd scored one more goal in the group. Seven That's goals. Right. Six. That's right. Five margins. But Chris, what 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 they I understand that. And you're right then. They then went on to beat all those big teams in the knockout stages. And what they did have was that, you know, the incredible atmosphere that European nights at Anfield can generate. Anfield atmospheres as they go, it should be pretty good on Saturday, shouldn't it? When a uh, certain Steven Gerrard returns, I mean that must be. I, I don't know what. I mean, listen, you know the ovation that he'll get will be great, but it still will be fairly sort of like you know bizarre occasion, won't it? Yeah, it'd be quite strange because obviously he, ne- he never went back there as a player because he went to LA Galaxy and then retired, so he's mm. never had that where he's gone to. Ever ever gone to Am- he obviously been there his whole career since he was a kid, but he's never gone to Anfield as an away player. As it'll be quite, I imagine it'd be maybe a bit pantomime for a bit, like where it'll be like a few fake boos for him, and then obviously a load of cheers and that. But it'll be interesting to see. You know, do I hundred percent believe if Villa score a late winner? I can't see him subduing his celebrations. I think oh, no. I think he's a born winner, and even though it's his club and all of that, he knows he's 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 got a job to do at Villa, and he knows for the future Everton rests on that. So I think it'll be. It, I don't think it'll be Jose Mourinho running down the touchline or anything, but I think the initial will be a big jump up and a big leap, and then he might calm himself down. But 
Um, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a strange kind of welcoming. I'm sure it'll be weird cheers, but as I said, I think there might be a few kind of pantomime booze just to yeah. just to remind them that they're, 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 they he might be the hero, but on Saturday they want him to get beat. Yeah, I mean, David, um, Chris said then that 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 that, that Stephen Gerrard has got a job to do at Villa. Um, he's been doing it now for a couple of weeks. What sort of job is he doing? Oh, excellent! I mean, I think he's been his first few games in charge, and I think they 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 certainly pushed pushed City all the way. Um, you know, last week. I mean, I think Guardiola said that, and you can see the way Guardiola and his and his staff celebrated um, at, at the final whistle. You know, the, you know. The, the, how much it meant to them and, and how hard they were pushed. I mean, is it Bernardo Silva scored a you know a, a, a world class goal and, and and you know City City played with the, the usual verve. But I mean, I wasn't at the game, but um, from speaking to colleagues who, who who were at the game, you know they uh, they were really pushed back in the second half, City um, by Villa, um, and were were pretty fortunate to, to to get out there with all three points. So I think you have to you know look at the look at the, the games he's managed, um, Gerard, and say you know certainly he's, he's done a good job. You know he's gone in there, he's galvanised mm. the team. I think was it five defeats in a row under under Dean Smith um, that the kind yeah. of did in the end, and and you know that immediate bounce you get from a new manager. Of, of course, that's happened, and we always talk about that. And and and, and that's that, that's happened in the case of Villa for, for Gerard. Now it, it's really maintaining that. But you'd have to say, you know, the the, the kind of player he was, you know, the the, the experience he has, the, the the job he did up at Rangers. I mean, he's he's so well yeah. qualified to, to to slot into. I think he made the right choice in, in in going for in going for the job at Villa. It's the right platform for him to to take the next step in his managerial career. Um, and let's listen. It will be a huge test, and you know he's under no illusions about that at, at Anfield. You know he knows the place inside out. He knows the team, uh, and he knows what to expect. Um, and it'll be it'll be really interesting to see how he how he copes with it, how he sets Villa up. They're a far better team, far far better organised. Um, you know, far far better going forward uh, than they were under Dean Smith. And you know, I think I think he's he's been a very shrewd appointment for Villa. Matt, um, you know, we've all dealt with Steven Gerrard for. You know, many years in in his role as a as a player, particularly as an England player. Um, it's interesting when Chris says about him whether or not he'll celebrate it if Villa get any joy at Anfield, um, and I'm certain he will. And and that's right, he does, isn't it? And, and on top of that, I do think this 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 idea, this accepted narrative that you know there's some sort of progression towards his inevitable return to Anfield as, as manager down the line. I don't fully buy into that. I really don't fully buy into that. You know, I'm I'm not sure that that is his, you know, be all and end all is to go back to to Anfield. I think towards the end of his his playing career, I thought increasingly he might have thought, you know what, you know, what would have happened had I left? You know, obviously he had the chance to go to, I think it was Chelsea, he probably had the chance to go to Real Madrid. And he and he didn't he stayed at Anfield because you know he loved Liverpool, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But you know, I do I do think I always get the impression, I don't know about you, that I always get the impression when speaking to him on and off the record that you know there's always that twinge of well, you know, should I have proved myself elsewhere? And I think this is a great chance for him to do just that. Whether or not he ends back at Anfield as manager, I don't think that is gonna be his driving force. You know, listen, listen, Villa's a huge club, it's a fantastic club, it's one of the best clubs in the country, you know, and then beyond that, there's the England job. So you know, I, I don't think, you know, we should overplay this idea that he has some incredible loyalty and drive, you know, to get back to Anfield. No, I don't think so. I think the only reason, the main reason for giving Steven Gerrard the Liverpool job is when if Liverpool need lifting out of some sort of doldrums uh, uh, and, you know, he needs to come back in to re- revive 
the Anfield spirit, and they're the kind of words that we'll be hearing at the time. But well, I don't exactly exactly like that but i don't think he'll have the it won't be in his career plan to to go back to liverpool in a time of crisis and try and carry them again like he did as a player for so many years i, I think he'd be more interested at, at some point in his career in the england job I do. um very much so and you know if england have got anything about them they might be looking at him when Southgate finally goes with that extended contract because if his career progression carries as it is I think the fact that a former England player is in charge of the England team is what's helped um, you know turn the three lines into into what they've become um, what I would say about Jared is I thought I found an interesting interview at the weekend I can't remember which player it was unfortunately on BBC but uh, saying that Gerard doesn't uh, participate much in training which I found quite interesting yeah. as a player of obvious caliber. He's clearly setting his stall out. I'm now Steven Gerrard, the manager. I mean, we've all known former players that have, have gone into co- I mean, Graham Suness was still using it, the five sides as an informal disciplinary process at Blackburn, wasn't he? With with players who stepped out of line feeling the the, the weight of his studs rather than necessarily fines. Um uh, and managers choose to go down that line. But I find for as much as he could teach them on the pitch and show them how how, how to do it, he's actually preferring to take a, a sort of back, a step back from that uh, and look at the bigger picture. And, and yeah, yeah, I think he's taking management very, very seriously. Um, and, you know, and I almost like a new chapter. I'm not necessarily one just leading back to Liverpool at some point. Chris, um, I think, I think, He's, he's obviously taken it seriously in the sense that he is meticulous in everything that he's ever done, I think, since he was a, a youth team player at Anfield. But realistically, just looking at Saturday's game, um, can Villa get something at Anfield? It's going to be very tough. As, as we said, Liverpool mm. are, are, are really on the up. But yeah, I suppose you look at the Brighton, gone there and got something um, and take some hope from that. But I think it's going to be difficult Uh I think just when Liverpool have everything going in their favour, they, they are this kind of relentless machine. And at the minute, they've just got that. Um, what what can Villa do? It, it's to try and frustrate Liverpool and try and, and, try and get into half-time, like, kind of like Wolves did at, at, at their places. Try and get to half-time at least nil-nil and, and frustrate them. And, and hopefully, Dervok Origi doesn't come on and somehow score in the 94th minute again. Yeah. But, um, I think that's the, the kind of way... Cause, you go and try and play toe-to-toe at Liverpool and Anfield, there's only one winner there. So I think that's the job for Villa is, is how long can they frustrate Liverpool quite and down that crowd. And, and obviously, Gerard will know that better than anybody. He knows what, what the Anfield crowd does. So he'll know how to go how to approach this game. But yeah. you still think with the attack and talent Liverpool have that they'll eventually find a way through. I mean, you, you, you mentioned that game there at Wolves for Liverpool. Now, Wolves frustrated him. I was at that game and... And um, I totally agree they frustrated him, but I just don't think it's enough just to frustrate a team without really offering anything on, on, on the counter-attack. And, and, that, and that was Wolves, I'm afraid. You know, they, they did frustrate Liverpool, but they didn't They didn't offer... They offered next to nothing on the counter-attack, the odd run from Traore, and that was it, really. And when you offer nothing on the counter-attack, then you're, you're susceptible to the 94th-minute Divock Origi winner, I'm afraid. So people say it might be lucky, but it just happens. You know, that, that, that might, it might happen in the 74th, the 84th, the 94th. It doesn't really matter. And, of course, Jota missed that, that sitter when he somehow managed to blast the ball straight to Connor Cody. So I think, I think Wolves have got to offer a little bit more on the break. And Wolves, of course, go to 
City, David, on, on Saturday. Um, again, the fixtures look as though, you know, the, the, the top the, the top team, the top three teams should win all the games. It doesn't always work like that. But City, Wolves, City have to bounce back from, from you know, from that fairly sort of disparate and outing in Leipzig. Yeah, I mean, listen, we, we would have said a few weeks ago that, that when, you know, Crystal Palace came to the Etihad, that there was only one winner. Uh, and of course, they they ended up taking all three points, winning two nil, scoring two goals on on, on the counter attack. So, City can be beaten. They, you know, for all their brilliance, for all their you know beautiful passing and movement, and you know the the brilliant players that Guardiola has at his disposal, you know they have an underlying vulnerability at times. And you know, Palace have shown that this season. Tottenham at the start of the season showed it. PSG um, obviously, you know, uh, beat them in Paris. So. You know they, they they can be beaten, um, but I think there will be a an a, a immediate reaction um, on Saturday from from City. Um, you'd expect the likes of you know all the players that didn't travel to Leipzig um, in midweek will come back straight back into the team. The likes of Bernardo Silva, Amarik Laporte, um, you know all all, all these yeah. players. Cancelo, who's probably been you know well, I think Bernardo's been their best player this season, but Jao Cancelo's you know just so close behind him. So I think you know Guardiola will. Will restore the established players to the lineup, and and will expect a reaction. And, and and City tend to do that. You know, when when they do suffer a defeat, he tends to get a reaction from them. Um, but you know, Wolves. I think Wolves. They considered just one goal. I think in the last four games. So they will, as you said, you know, yeah. look look to frustrate City as as they deal with Liverpool. But as you say, Danny, if if you don't offer anything going forward, That's and you don't offer anything on the counter attack, you are susceptible, um, you know, to, yeah. to, to, that, to that late goal. Or and uh, you know, it's very hard. Palace did it, but it's very hard. You know, obviously Palace done it twice now. They've won at the Etihad twice in recent seasons, but yeah. it's very hard um, to, to to thwart a team like Manchester City for, for, for that long because they they wear you down. You know, the ball possession, the recycling of the ball. You know, Ferguson, Alex Ferguson dubbed it that famous passing carousel they get you on. You know, when when he played Guardiola's Barcelona, and it's the same as City. You know, they're just relentless in, in the way they grind teams down and, and work the ball and tire teams out. Uh, so it will be interesting, but I'm I'm, I'm fully expecting City to win, um, not least yeah. because they're lost in midweek, and Guardiola will expect a reaction. And and even though a lot of those players didn't who didn't play in Leipzig, you know, will you know will play that they will want to set the record straight and and, and get City back on track. Yeah, and Matt um, talking about you know offering something on the counter attack, offering something going forward when playing away at one of the um, elite clubs, then. You'd expect Leeds to have a have a go at Stamford Bridge, wouldn't you, on Saturday? And that might maybe that's just what Chelsea need at the moment. Yeah, no, I was going to say that. I think um, Chelsea first thing they've got to do is that, and Tuchel will tell them this: they're going to have to work hard to keep Leeds in check. But when that back three is functioning uh, and uh, and playing properly, then it's a very hard unit to break down. And for all that Leeds will come at Chelsea, I think mm. um, Chelsea will deal with that. Um, and at the same time, find gaps behind that sort of those ways of attack to exploit and uh, and perhaps nick a few. I think that's possibly one that that will uh, rebuild their confidence a little bit. And I don't fancy Leeds on Stamford Bridge at all for all, all that. I think it's too <laughs> they're too adventurous almost going forward against what until the last couple of weeks has been a really solid wall of Chelsea defence. Yeah, and David, um, the the Ralph Revolution continues at Carrow Road, I assume. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm going down to to, to Norwich on on Saturday. Um, uh, again, we talked earlier about how he, you know, rang the changes uh, in in um, last night against Young Boys. So you'll expect the likes of Ronaldo, um, you know, Bruno Fernandes uh, has come back in the team. Sancho, 
um, you know, Fred and McTominay in those holding positions, um, Maguire, Lindelof. Um, the interesting thing, I opted De Gea in goal because uh, Henderson started last night. The interesting thing, I think, when we touched on this, is, is the fullbacks. You know, mm. Oli, Oli Solskjaer, Aaron Wan-Bissaka um, and, and Luke Shaw were, were undroppable, untouchable. You know, and no, no matter what Dallow and Tellers were doing in training, they just never got a look in. Iranians come in with one game, you know, and 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 seeing what they can offer offensively. And he loves his fullbacks to play higher up. You know, when, when he plays that 4-2-2-2 formation, it's the fullbacks that provide the width because obviously, the, you know, through the middle, they're, they're, they're so narrow. So the fullbacks have got to get forward. Now, obviously, Luke Shaw does does that in fairness. But Wamba Saka, you know, really is 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 found wanting. Mm-hmm. Going you know, he, he's got the ability to recover and tackles and he's defensively okay, but he offers nothing going forward. So it's been interesting to see how, you know, within within the space of a week, Randick has decided that he that, that Dallow at right back and Alex Tellers at left back offer far more going forward and offer far more in his system um than yeah. the Wamba Saka and Shaw. So I think those two will keep their places. Um yeah, listen, I mean Norwich are Norwich are in trouble, aren't they? You know, yeah. I, I think United to go there and win, um, and it'll be it'll be interesting to see you know whether he sticks with that formation. Uh, I think, as I said, the personnel that, that played against Palace, I'd expect the same team to play. If I'm honest, I mean, uh, Cavani's not not is, is um, due back in training on Monday, as is Rafael Varane, um, but no one other than Greenwood, I think, has, has got a chance of, of of breaking into that starting lineup. I think yeah. I think Man pretty much stick with the with the same team that, that beat Palace and, 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 you know, expect them to implement his philosophy again of, of high pressing, of high tempo, proactive, you know, he had this, this famous countdown clock, didn't he, at Leipzig where, you know, when he lost possession, there was a clock counting down eight seconds and you had to win the ball back within eight seconds. You saw that um, against Palace, you know, United were onto them as soon as they lost the ball. Yeah. He'll want to see more of that certainly at Norwich, but I, I can't see anything other than a United win with the quality they have. They, they, they must share that clock around these hipster managers. I've heard, I've heard a few of them have got that clock, hasn't they? I mean, Pep got that clock as well. It must be. They just give each of these clocks. Do you remember the countdown clock of the FA to winning the World Cup? You remember that, don't you, won't you? It's in a drawer there, isn't it? It's still, still it's in a drawer. I thought they got it back out again. Have they dusted it off? Just enlighten it. Just enlighten, just enlighten the listeners as to what the countdown clock has seen. The countdown clock was, uh, it was came when, um, uh, in during his... Uh, Fairly explosive period as FA chairman, Greg Dyke said <laughs> when we were building St George's Park, the you know France built their version in, and ten years later they won the World Cup. So we'll win the World Cup by 2022. And the coaches at St George's Park responded and said, "Well, okay, let's make a challenge." And had a, a countdown clock counting down to what was then the summer of 2022 before FIFA uh, did a, an about face and the light. So everyone was focused on what we were doing, and then. Subsequent regimes weren't sure if that was putting too much pressure on a particular tournament when things can go wrong, and I know it went away. But perhaps, uh, perhaps you're right. If you know, now, now we look like we look like we actually have a chance. I think after Iceland, I think people were were, were not really mentioning countdown clocks, but but yeah, it's back out again, perhaps, and uh, and we're all hoping reset for for November and December. They were mass. That, that was the that's, that's the irony of it. When when we all heard about or when when we were told about the countdown clock, it was like you know widely, understandably derided, and like you know as as, as typical of Greg Dyke's rather um, chaotic reign. And now now of course, like you know, there's, there's absolutely nothing fanciful about you know we've been to World Cup semi final and and a European Championship final. You know why why not have the countdown clock? I mean it's. It's like you know, I, I would have thought 
obviously Southgate wouldn't go down that route, but um, but no, no, that's very, 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 um, very interesting whether the clock has gone out or not. Just going back to the Premier League fixtures, um, um, guys, Chris, I'm, I'm very interested in how Everton and Arsenal do this weekend because obviously their game on Monday was a particularly significant game. I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll ask you on, on Everton's situation um, in terms of, of like, you know, Clearly, just the result they needed. Maybe not the performance, but the results and the character. Does this show that you know, um, a is is on all the board, and b the fans behind Benitez long term. Um, and the players, obviously. I, th- I think the players uh, to are committed to it. Um, I think you could see that in, in the Arsenal game. As you said, the performance are. I wasn't overly impressed by the performance. I, no. I thought at times in the game they were they were off it. Arsenal had some big chances. Um, uh, Nikita had the one. I think it was at one one, and then Aubameyang had a late one to equalise, and obviously would have changed the mood very very differently. But sometimes results like that can just give you that lift and get you back on track. It just it seemed like in this win this run, it was like how are they ever going to get out of this? Everything just was not going right. Everything was going wrong. Um, and I suppose the hope now is that yeah, that kind of boost will kind of just give them that lift. But it's it's still it's still there's a lot wrong there. They're still they're still missing Calvert Lewin badly. Um, Yerry Mina goes off after thirty minutes. That's a big worry for them. Benitez has spoken so much in the last few weeks about how he's missed that kind of spine of of Mina, Decore and, and Calvert-Lewin. And now Decore's back. Mina looked like he was back, but he only lasts half an hour. And and so they've got that problem there again. Calvert-Lewin, who knows when he's coming back. They keep pushing it back, pushing it back. But, yeah, it's it's basically, as, as I kind of wrote the other night, it's like the, the dark clouds haven't lifted. There's maybe a glimmer of hope there, but yeah. we've got to see now against... They've got to go away to Palace, which isn't an easy game. Um, and they've got to go and get a result there. But I still think there's major issues there. That everybody's not singing from the same hymn sheet. I thought it was poor of Mashiri not to be there um, when he had planned to go to the game. I thought it was poor to leave that to Kenroy and, and Baxendale because if they had gone wrong, that it was going to be more vitriolic abuse thrown at the board. And surely he should have been there to to see that firsthand. And and and. I thought it was poor. He wasn't. So I yeah. still think there's a lot wrong at Everton, but they will hope that that boot, that win will give them a boost and give them a few wins to at least kind of ease the pressure all around the club. Yeah, I mean, matter. I mean, uh, although you know the, the crowd were behind them, um, I thought that Everton were vulnerable on Monday night, and it was a game at Arsenal, and Arteta will be kicking themselves really that they didn't win. Um, and that they, they didn't even get anything from. Um, sort of typical Arteta and Arsenal, sort of just a little bit wishy-washy at the moment. A good match from Southampton on, on Sunday? Saturday, sorry. Um, yeah, uh, we were all supposed to be trusting in the process, aren't we? But Yeah. But, and then there was that big 10-game unbeaten <laughs> run uh, that, that showed us that Arteta is the man for the job. But, I mean, if you look at Arsenal this season... <laughs> They got abs- they're absolutely miles away from Manchester City back in August. Mm. They lost 5-0. And then they're better than Norwich. They're better than Burnley. They were better than AFC Wimbledon. They were better than Nuno's Spurs. They were about as good as Graham 
Potter's Brighton, about as good as as, um, as Crystal Palace, a little bit better than Dean Smith's Villa, uh, better than Bielsa's Leeds when they were stuttering a little bit, better than Leicester uh, when uh, you know which who have been a bit hit and miss this season, better than Watford, and absolutely miles away from Liverpool. Better than Newcastle, couldn't keep up with United, couldn't keep up with Everton. If you described Arsenal as that to an that Arsenal team to an Arsenal fan, I think they'd say that's that's underachieving for Arsenal, wouldn't they? Yeah, they're sort of a Brighton Crystal Palace team, not quite as good as an Everton yeah. when they're being competent. It's not good enough, and mm. so far off the big teams that um you know that it's that it's frightening, and I don't know this process just doesn't seem to be going anywhere. It seems to just be pitching Arsenal two grades below where they were when Wenger left uh, and sitting there quite comfortably. So, yeah, they probably will beat Southampton. But, you know, if, nice. you, if you ask Wenger's Arsenal, you know, should you be beating Southampton? Yes, of course they should. And, you know, they just seem to be getting the results that that a team slightly worse than they were four years ago would get. Yeah. There's no particularly great, uh, amazing... So there's not even any signs against the good teams that they're even close to putting something together that can get back up there. Yeah, and that's the problem. I don't see where this process is leading. I just see it meandering, being vaguely competent, um, and yeah. And in the past, they perhaps lose games that they shouldn't uh, and win games that they should. But now they're just doing exactly this, exactly what it says on the tin. And unfortunately, yeah. that's a tin that's been downgraded. It's sort of an own brand tin rather than the premium tin that it was four years ago. And that's a lot to do with what's going on behind the scenes and the quality of the squad that they've got. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. If it is a process, it is a long one. You know, I, it was alarming. You know, and, and I think Chris will, will have been there as well. It was alarming how they were that they were pretty ruthlessly, easily brushed aside by Liverpool Anfield hmm. um, a couple of weeks ago. Across North London, no different types of problems, Matt. I mean, perhaps oh, yes. you, because your name's on, on this story here, I'm, I'm reading. If yes, you could... it's a slightly out-of-date story, I'm afraid, in the early editions anyway. Well, I was going to say, I, I mean, I'm not sure. Could you keep? Could you bring us right up to date I with I've spoken the situation to Spurs? I've spoken to, to Spurs. Um, the situation is the game, UEFA have confirmed the game is definitely off, first of all, because that was clouded. During the day, I think what happened was Stad René... Um, this is there a game against Stad Rene in the game against tonight? Sorry, um, yes, which you yeah. to do, um, which um, they touched down at London City Airport about, I think, about uh, quarter to eight last night, um, ready to play, excited to play, and then found out an hour later in a meeting, a three-way Zoom meeting uh, between the two clubs and UEFA, which. Um, I, I get the sense, and, and Spurs aren't really denying this, that, that the Spurs did hijack and, and take the ball by the horns and say, look, this, we can't play this game. Mm, you ain't yeah. have this rule of 13 players, uh, providing you've got a goalkeeper. Uh, and, and, uh, and Spurs are just above that, looking at the count back. It's difficult because this is all private medical information, so that yeah, well, who's actually got the COVID and who hasn't it is really hard to to ask about and also very hard to print because it is, you know, uh, mm. personal information. So you're only, you're guessing a little bit, but I think that they've got 14 players um, w w with a number of goalkeepers ready to fill space on the bench. Oliver Skip is the one thing that 
that bumps the numbers because he's not on their A list because he's a young player technically. Um, so uh, so it's sort of fifteen players that they're available. UEFA say if you've got thirteen, you've got to play the game. Um, what Spurs are saying is, you know, they're not worried about playing the game. To be honest, it you know they're worried about this disease. Yeah this pandemic, which yesterday killed another 161 people in this country, let's not forget. Um, You know, it's a serious disease. It's not like coughing a bit or a tactical groin strain. This is a proper pandemic that that is actually still running rampant through the world. Uh, And and they're not happy about it. And to be honest, earlier in the day, the indication from the French side was they weren't that fussed about playing against the team that were, were, had, COVID right throughout it. Anyway, I think what's happened is Spurs were a bit bullish in this meeting. Stad René, having flown all the way to London, just to be told the game was off. Um, uh, and um, and I think UEFA had had their arm twisted in that regard a little bit. Then said, put out a remarkable statement about 10.30 last night, uh, saying that this is all Spurs doing. You know, they've called the game off. We want to play. This is, you know, this is against fair play. Well, actually, it's not because if Spurs don't get the game played by December the thirty-first, they lose it three-nil anyway. That's the UEFA rule. Um, this is just a way of trying to get some sort of game that makes sense that people are actually up for that is safe to play. Let's not get that wrong because that's the thing. As Conte, he was very emotional yesterday. He used the word "we're scared" because people that he's got in his training ground and that he's teaching and working close to because they've all tested negative and then coming off the pitch, having tested negative, you know, the morning of the game and then coming off for the next test and it's positive. And, you know, it takes a while for these tests to kick in. So it is, and they've had to shut the training ground, which is why I'm pretty certain that the the Premier League will announce today that that Sunday's Mm -hmm. game at Brighton will be off because they have always been, there's been six games called off and the threshold's always been a lot lower um, for, uh, for the Premier League because they see sense. They realise that actually this is a serious illness. It's not something you try and cheat on. And with the fixture backlog, do you know what? A 3-0 defeat might suit Spurs of getting knocked out of this Mickey Mouse competition anyway. So they free up midweek evenings to catch up because they've obviously missed the Burnley game, which was frozen off. Um, So they're going to have a fixture crisis because they're still in the um, EFL Cup. So, yeah, Stad Rene's statement was remarkable and I think missed, missed the point that that this is serious stuff now still. And, uh, you know, we need to get a grip of, of calling teams out, you know, when quite a large number of them are ill. And, and as they say, they're being forced to to do their job when they've all got families at home, especially coming up to Christmas when they're likely to see those relatives and, and people. So, yeah, um, the game is off ultimately. We'll find out today, I think, from UEFA what went on, what the yeah. act, whether they'll get the game played or whether they'll give the result to to Stad Rene. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, you, that, that, that doesn't matter. You know, these, these players, it's not just the players, as you quite say, the players are going home to their families, which is why, surely, Brighton, the, the, the game away at Brighton, I assume, will, will be off. You know, you know, we can't, you, you know, we're, we're all listening to news every single day. You know, the concern about new variants, the, the new restrictions, then, like, you know, football can't play fast and loose with this, can they? No, and, and they haven't, the Premier League, to be fair, throughout. Yeah. Yeah, we we all applauded when we got with Project Restart. I think we all, you know, certain aspects of football thought, you know, once we got the Euro 2020 finals played with fans, you know, in the, albeit a year late, we all thought, right, we've beaten this, said said certain sections of football, especially UEFA. 
Um, they got their Champions League games played when they needed them. Uh, and it, no, it's still ongoing. We're with nearly as many cases. It's close 51,000 new cases yesterday yeah. in Britain, which was close to the peak it was last January. Um, it, you know, it's not been, it is ongoing. And we've got to have common sense. And if you wait for with dithering and saying, well, let's see how many tests you get tomorrow, then that was the wrong answer. And if Spurs have taken the ball by the horns and said, no, we're not playing, I don't, I find it hard to condemn them for that. And uh, yeah, you know, UEFA are the organization, I always come back to this UEFA are the organization that played games on the night of 9 11. They've never had a sense of uh, of perspective on any of this sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, and if Spurs are having to beat them about the head and saying that this is the right thing to do, then fair play to them for, for, yeah. for doing that. I totally agree. Totally agree. But I, I tell you what, just just to just to end with, and just maybe to to, to lighten the mood slightly, and in light of the fact that that, that somewhat bizarrely, um, it seems the government are saying you still can have Christmas parties despite all this news. And we did just want to just have have anyone got any recollections of of famous football Christmas parties? Um, Dave, I'll start with you. I remember. Um... Uh, that, that there was a. Do you remember Stig Tofting? Apparently, when he was playing at Aarhus, yeah. he, um, he uh, availed himself of the uh, refreshments uh, uh, far too readily at the um, Christmas do, and ended up having a, a fight with four of his teammates. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. You know, footballers and Christmas parties are not really the uh, the the, 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 no, the, I, best, the best partners. Ex- ex- exactly. Just, just briefly, I'll just go there about you know in, in the old days, obviously, Chris, football's Christmas parties where we're, we're always involved in having a few few too many to drink. Um, obviously, actually, Liverpool ones were legendary, as, as Chris will well know. Always in always in fancy dress. In fact, I think Jan Mulby actually posted a picture the other day on social media of the, of them all in fancy dress. They were legendary. I remember I remember a few, but but some I haven't too much to drink. I remember back in the, in the I think it was like eighty nine ninety. And do any of you remember Harry McNally from the Chester manager? Passed mm. away now. I mean, what a character Harry was. I mean, absolutely brilliant. He looked like he had the biggest collection of spaghetti Western movies, you know. I mean, he looked like he, he had the sort of hair and a moustache, and he was fantastic, Harry. I remember ghosting his column. I remember going into his into his office, and we were, we were going to talk about what, what at the time, obviously, hooligan, hooliganism was a big problem. And we were going to do this particular week's column on and what he would do, and, and I walked in, and, and he was he, he was naked on the floor, crawling around with a pair of nail scissors, pretending to cut the carpet. I'm like, what are you, what are you doing, Harry? He says, this is what I would make convicted hooligans do. I'd make them cut football pictures with nail scissors. <laughs> and I'm taking this, I, I, I'm, I'm like, you know, taking this dance around the column. His secretary's coming in with a cup of tea, as if this is completely normal. Very famously, Harry sang Keith Burchin, who I think is now manager of Solihull Moors uh, for Chester City. And legend has it they had this Christmas do but before I think Keith had even played. And and but I'd be careful because obviously Keith is you know is 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 um and his manager sorry all more, so I don't want to disparage him. But but apparently it was he told Keith not or suggested they don't go to this Christmas do. Bottom line is they both go and they both end up uh, him, him, in in a bit of a stays outside. Apparently, Harry what Harry used to do at this Christmas do, there was there was another group there. And Harry was going around sort of basically putting his false teeth in their drinks, like just to scare them or whatever. <laughs> anyway, that's my rather bizarre one. Massive, uh, we, we're running a bit short of time, so if we give a brief uh, you too. Quickie, coming back to your Liverpool um, fancy dress ones, a legendary story from those, wasn't it? With Steve McMahon bouncing on the door when they're all turning up. Uh, and one of the players, they're always ill-judged, always absolute 
appalling uh, judgment shown by the players. One of them, one of the players turned up um, in in a Ku Klux Klan outfit, <laughs> and and Steve McMahon's on the door and said, "You can't wear that. John Barnes might be in there." And he said, "No." I'm in here and took his hood off and it was John Barnes wearing it. (laughs) What the thinking is behind that. Vinnie Jones took Chelsea dwarf tossing, um, which was again, uh, sort of a reason why, why most Harry Redknapp hates these parties because there's always something goes horrendously wrong. Um, Except the only manager I think who's embraced it was, was uh, um, Harry Bassett, who in 1992 decided that Sheffield United, started the season so badly every year that they only got going after Christmas that he held their party in August, famously, and they all got into Santa outfits. So they had their off their, their Christmas party in August in the hope that results picked up. And uh, they famously scored the first goal in the Premier League, didn't they? So um, so sometimes yeah. they're a blessing, but generally they're an absolute pain and cause no end of trouble for clubs' media departments. Absolutely right. Chris? Um, you mentioned Harry Redknapp. The one I remember is 2009 when Tottenham players uh, pulled one over on him and they said they went. he went and said, I'd never let my players have a Christmas party um, on the Friday when, unbeknownst to him, they'd been out drinking in Dublin on the Tuesday and they, it would spell the end of Robbie Keane's uh, time at the club racing much. But I only mention it because they ended up in an infamous nightclub in Dublin called Copperface Jacks. And to any of our listeners, if you ever go to Dublin when the restrictions are lifted, you need to go and visit that place. It's uh, it's a sight to behold, but it's not a place you would expect to meet um, Premier League footballers, put it that way. And just finally on it, the story was actually broken. Uh, it was exclusive in one of our rival newspapers, but it was actually broken in an old school way on a messaging board. This was before Twitter was really big. And it was some fellow went on and said, I saw the Tottenham players in, in a copper face jacks last night. And he ended up getting absolutely destroyed by all these people saying, no way, no chance, blah, blah, blah. And then the story broke a few days later. But uh, yeah, <laughs> they were all in there and they ended, ended Robbie Keane's Tottenham career pretty much. Well, if you are going to a Christmas party this week, next week, the week after you know, just uh, uh, just be be careful and be safe. I think is the message from those footballers' Christmas party tales, lads. If you are going to them, enjoy them. I know a couple of us probably are incapacitated and won't be attending, but um, if you are going, enjoy them. Everyone else, enjoy enjoy your Christmas parties. Hopefully, we'll be here again next week. Um, so, thanks for listening, um, and speak to you next week. Bye.